You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here as we worship the Lord together. And if this is your first time with us, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, As you've heard already, this is kind of a big day for those of us who will be the founding members of Redemption Church. And tonight will be a special time in which we will covenant together and officially constitute Redemption Church. We've been laying the groundwork for this, a foundation built upon Christ and the apostles and the prophets over these last several months. And and today's the day in which we officially constitute and become a church and bind ourselves together. So if you're a founding member, again, you need to be here tonight. (laughs) But if you're not going to be a founding member. Again, we're going to have a membership class most likely uh, probably in October sometime, and that would be a great time uh, to, to come and sign up for and be a part to learn what Redemption Church is all about and how you can become a member of Redemption Church. Uh, but even if you're not going to be a founding member tonight, put, come anyway and see what God is doing. It's, it's uh, not every day where you get to see a new church be, be born by the grace of God. And so come tonight. It'll be a special time as we worship together. So invite your family, invite your friends, invite anybody you'd like to come and witness the birth of Redemption Church this, this evening at 5. But, but today, let me invite you to turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 7 through 21. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Let me read the text before us. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, And hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. Father, we ask and we pray that the love that you share within yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit might be manifest in the love that the saints of Redemption Church have for one another. Lord, may you perfect your love in us as we constitute, as we form, as we covenant together this day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today is a, is a big day. Tonight there will be 68 of us who will gather together before God to constitute a new church. We will gather and formally covenant together We will sign our church covenant, which will list the the responsibilities, the commitments, the expectations of membership that we willingly and joyfully sign, making serious the commitment we make to God as a member of this congregation and a commitment we make to one another, to care for one another. The Lord has saw it fit by his wonderful grace to birth one of his churches. Our redemption church is God's church. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's, it's his church. We are his people. He has saw it fit to birth one of his churches. And by his sovereign will, he has united us together in Christ. And so tonight, we will publicly commit to care for one another as we partner together as one people to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to this community, the city of Wilson, and beyond. And it will be a weighty but a joyous night as Redemption Church officially comes into existence as the members covenant together. So in light of our our covenant service tonight, I want to take this morning and and think through the bond of love that we share in Christ. The bond of love that we share in Christ. And I want to invite each of us to think very deeply on this bond of union and love that we have in Christ, particularly its implications for the church and for the membership of a local body. So we are going to go fairly deep this morning, so I hope you're ready. Uh, This is a a deep and weighty passage filled with glorious truths because I want to try to help us understand the, the mysteriousness of the gospel and how it unites us to God. And and that's difficult to articulate, and I want to do the best I can to do just that from 1 John 4. But my hope more than anything else is, is not to stimulate your intellect, but rather to elicit joy and hope and gratefulness to God in your hearts. So my hope is that with the Spirit's help that you might leave this morning in awe over God, over Christ, over the bond of union you share in him and with your fellow members of a local church. So all as we gaze upon the beauty of God, who is love, all as we consider the the radicalness of God's grace that, that brings us into the fellowship of other saints, that allows us to participate in some way in the love of God, all as we have the privilege of living in love and covenant together as a local church. So as we consider 1 John 4, 7 through 21, we see that John gives a strong command, a simple command, but a strong command for the church to love one another. 
to love one another. However, he does something quite astonishing and interesting and wonderful. He roots Christian love into the very nature of those who are truly born of God. Love for the church, John says, is the distinguishing mark of all who have been truly born again. That you love the brothers, you love the sisters, you love the people of God. And it's the distinguishing mark. And John often speaks in plain language. He's very simple sometimes with his phrases. In fact, if you're ever wanting to pick up New Testament Greek, you always start with John because he's just easy to read. But even though he's easy to read, the dynamics of which he speaks of here is is profound. It's deep, even mysterious in a way. So in sum, here's what I hope to teach you this morning from this text, is that God exists in a bond of love that is replicated and perfected in his church. God exists, his own being, his own existence, is defined as a bond of love, and that this is replicated and perfected in the church, in Christ's church. So before we kind of dive into this text, let me, let me kind of unpack that statement a little bit because there's a lot in there. I want to expand very briefly, kind of give you the big picture up front, and then kind of hone in a little bit more as we move through the text. So let me kind of expand what I mean by this summary statement. So, so first, we see that God has eternally existed as one God in three persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within the very nature of God is a dynamic of relationships within God's very nature as the Father and Son eternally love one another through the bond of the Holy Spirit. So so second, that the Trinity then, as we see in 1 John 4, it provides a pattern, a pattern for the very nature of God's work of salvation in the world. So in a sense, God is replicating the union he has within himself and the union he has with the church and the church has with Christ. So the pattern of God's inter-Trinitarian union, his being, his existence, is replicated in some way, is replicated in the church. And as we are united to Christ, we are bound by the Holy Spirit to enjoy and even participate and experience the love of God towards us. And then third, the love of God is perfected in us as we abide in God and as we're transformed by beholding the beauty of God. So so pressing in to the union we have with Christ, both on an individual basis and as a whole congregation, this is the source of true love and harmony in the church. We want to be a church that's filled with love and harmony and unity. And I want to suggest to you from 1 John 4, the way we do that is by pressing in deeper into the union we have with Christ. So to help explain this text, I want to break it down into two main sections. First, we must know the source of love. And then second, we must abide in the God of love. Let's take that first one here. Know the source of love. And we see this in verse 7 through 12. So as we try to break down this first point, there's going to be some, some sub points, all right? So it's, going to, it's kind of a complicated outline, but, but follow with me. It should all be on the screen. So I'm going to try to break this down as we look at God's nature, God's revelation, God's replication, 
Okay, so let's think through God's nature, which should be the first point that will come up on the screen. So we see as John opens up in verse 7, he makes it clear, doesn't he? Absolutely clear that this command to love one another is essential for the life of a Christian and is the distinguishing mark for those who are born again. That if we have been truly born again by the Spirit of God, the love of God has been poured into your heart important to my heart, that we've been transformed, we've been regenerated, we've been given a new nature. And John implies that, that love for a Christian then is an innate response because we are birthed by a God who is love. God is love, therefore anyone born of God also is loving. It's kind of the logic behind what he says here. God is love, so anyone born of God also is loving. Just as, as in your old nature, sin was your natural response, now that you're born again by the Spirit, the Christian's natural disposition is one of love. It's our innate response. And so John does something, again, very fascinating here. He begins to root Christian love in the very nature of God's own being. So he says that God is love. God is love. Now, what does that mean that God is love? In general, our culture reverses that sentence, don't they? So many make love to be God rather than God is love. So God is love. This simple phrase, even the way it's constructed, it teaches us that first and foremost, that love is not something that is defined by our culture but rather it's defined by God's own existence. There will be lots of people who try to turn love into something that's simply self-affirmation, unrestrained acceptance, that love never tells anybody that they're wrong or that they need to change in any way. And for many, love has simply just become a buzzword for the idolatry of self is really the way we use it. And we must reject any definition of love that involves people hijacking love for their own sinful purposes. Because as Christians, as we think about what is love, how do we define love, we can never define it apart from God's holy and glorious nature. If we want to know what love is, we look to God, not to culture. However, the phrase God is love also gives us insight into God's being. And God's being is mysterious, he is transcendent. He is incomprehensible. And though we can know true things about God, we can never know God fully. We can never know him exhaustively. However, John shows us that love is an essential component of God's being. That as the doctrine of the Trinity is taught from the Bible, we see that God has always existed from eternity past in three persons. The Father loves the Son, and this bond of love between the two is the Holy Spirit. And God's very being is one of love. So before God ever created, before God ever chose to save, God first and foremost is love. Love is the Father, Son, and Spirit. So our triune God exists in a community of overflowing love. He is sufficient all within himself, sufficient in all his happiness, he is not contingent in any way upon his creation, upon human beings. And so one of the most perplexing questions, I think, in the Bible is, is why did God create at all? If he didn't need it, why did God choose to, to create and to create us in his own image? 
but yet he does. And in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted together to create the world, to bring about human creatures, knowing that they would have to redeem them through the blood of Christ, and to bring those fallen human creatures who would be redeemed by Christ into the fellowship of God's own love. And this leads us to consider God's revelation in verse 9 and 10. That as you look at verse 9, we see an astonishing truth as God reveals his loving nature through his work in the world, particularly through the sending of Christ into the world. Look at verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation, to be the propitiation for our sins. So God has always existed as love. It's part of his very nature, but we wouldn't know God as love unless he showed us and told us and revealed to us he is love. So God's loving nature went public in the sending of Christ into the world. That while we were still enemies of God, haters of God, rebels against God, lost in our sin, God loved us. He loved us still, and he sent Christ into the world to bear the wrath of God for our sins. This is what it means when John says Jesus became the propitiation for our sin. He, he bore the penalty, the brunt, the wrath for our sins upon the cross. And thus, through Jesus' crucifixion, a way is now opened, a narrow way that leads to life found in Jesus alone. And as we are united to Christ by faith alone, as we believe and trust in Jesus, we are able to commune with God, have a relationship with God. We can relish in receiving and enjoying the ravishment of God's love. I mean, I think this is an aspect of the gospel that we greatly underemphasize. Usually when we speak about the gospel, we speak of the, the legal, declarative act of justification, primarily in terms of escaping hell and the judgment for our sins. Now, that, that's certainly important. I'm not minimizing that in any way. But I think few Christians give careful thought to the astonishing implications that you, in Christ, are righteous in Christ. That, that you, in Christ, can enjoy the pleasures of God's love, that you in Christ are loved by God with the same intensity in which he loves himself, that we are loved by a perfect love that is being perfected in us. The same joy and delight that the father has for his son, now in Christ, God finds that same joy that same delight in you. This is astonishing that God's love for us is revealed through the sending of Christ and through the work of Christ upon the cross. We did not love God first, but he loved us and he demonstrates that love by sending his son into the world. He first loved us. And that leads to this idea of God's replication in verse 11 through 12, and I labored quite a bit over whether to, to use this word, 
Because the idea of replication is fraught with potential error and heresy, to be frank. <laughs> so here is, here is what I don't mean when I use that word. God does not replicate his own essence, nor am I proposing some sort of pantheistic or panentheistic force behind God. However, the love of God does extend and overflow not only in his creative energy, but also in his redemptive grace. And so as, God, as God's love overflows into the salvation of the church, we become, as, as the apostle Peter would say, partakers of the divine nature. That the love of God is now in us, and in some ways it's being replicated within our own hearts. You are being transformed by the God of love as he pours his love into you in Christ. So God is not sharing his godness with us. The, the divide between creator and creation is fixed and should always remain. But yet, in some mysterious way, the love of God is extended and replicated into our own hearts, allowing us to be truly united to God. Though we don't become God, we do become one with God. That in Christ, there is this mystical union that the saints share with their God. And so redeemed by Christ and bound by the Spirit, we participate in some mysterious way in the love of God and receiving and giving love back to God in worship. But here is really the crux of how God's love is replicated, and that is the church. The church. That just as our one God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit— and as the, our God is bound in self-denying love for one another, so too is the church united in love, though many persons. Now, this isn't an exact replication. It's more of a pattern or a copy cut from the original, similar but different in its quality from the source. But what I'm trying to suggest and what I think John is teaching here in 1 John 4 is that the Trinity provides the pattern for our ecclesiology. Those are some big words. Let me unpack it. What do I mean by that? That the doctrine of the Trinity, who God is, his very essence and nature, provides the pattern for the church. The very nature of the church, being diverse yet unified together. That the doctrine of the Trinity should not be cast aside as confusing and irrelevant and maybe a little boring at times. Rather, the doctrine of God in his existence is, is incredibly significant, not only for your own Christian life, but for the life of the church and understanding the very nature of the church, what God is doing when he births a church. So John in verse 11 states that in response to all this, in response to God's love for us, we then ought to love one another. It's the Good and necessary consequence. It's the logical outcome of all that God has done if we understand who God is. So then in verse 12, John says something incredibly powerful. He affirms the transcendent and invisibility of God. However, he states that the loving nature of God is revealed as God abides in us and as his love is perfected in us. In other words, as the church is united to Christ, in a, in a wonderful way, as we share in the love of God, the way a local church loves each other makes God visible to the watching world. In other words, the same overflowing love within God himself should be replicated 
in the life of the church, modeled in the way we love one another. People should be able to look to Redemption Church and the way we care and love for each other and say, that's what God's love is like. That's God's love in action. So before we press on, let me me give you a bit of a breather for a second and think through the significance of all this. Why is this important? Why, Why, particularly for me in my own heart, why do these truths continue to increase their grip on my heart and on my mind? Because if what I've said is is true and biblical, and I I believe it to be, then these are really humbling truths. So here are just a few ways. These aren't on the screen, but these are just a few ways that I personally am stirred by this, and I hope you're stirred by as well. Because first, I'm stirred to greater love and thankfulness to God for my salvation. Stirred to thankfulness, to gratitude, to love to God, because not only has God saved me from the wretchedness and my sin, God wants me to experience the highest of joys, the highest of delights that are only found in him. Like many of you, I've given my hand. I've tried finding fulfillment in this world, and I always come up empty-handed and further dissatisfied. Isn't that funny the way that works? The world promises, oh, this will make you happy. This will make you fulfilled. This will make you satisfied. And you say, all right, I'll try that. And then you more dissatisfied than you were to begin with. It's almost like drinking of the pleasures of the earth to find satisfaction is like having a a tall glass of ocean water, right? The salty water only leaves you more thirsty and more dehydrated. However, in Christ, you and I are offered living water, a water that truly and permanently satisfies the longing of my heart. So, So the aim of my Christian life then becomes pursuing true pleasure, true joy, true satisfaction. Because as I experience the love that God has for me, I'm humbled that God loved me first, that he elected me, that he called me, that he saved me, that he sustains me, and that he brings me into his own self so that I can participate in this gracious community of love. Second, I'm stirred to holiness and obedience to God. Thinking through these deep truths, it it means that I want to be holy. I want to obey God. That That if true delight, true pleasure, true happiness, true satisfaction is found in God alone and in Christ, then I'm able, by the grace of God, through the Spirit, I'm able to commune with the living God, to receive his love, to receive and know him in an intimate and personal way. And so because I can commune with God where there is true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction, then forsaking the world is no loss. It's no loss at all. You know, when we tend to speak of the Christian life, we tend to kind of speak of it as some some sacrifice. You know, I have to give up all of these things in my life, these fun things that the world enjoys in order to be holy, right? So God wants me to do. I got to be holy, which means I can't have fun anymore. I need to be joyless and miserable and, and, and angry all the time and frustrated. However, in light of this understanding of God's love and this fuller understanding of the gospel, we see that that's so misguided because holiness isn't an obstacle to joy, but rather holiness is the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to joy in Christ. Holiness cleanses the palate and it enriches the sweetness of God's pleasure 
to your soul. That the more you grow in holiness, the more you can taste the goodness of the Lord. In that sense, the call to Christian holiness isn't a begrudging burden, but a gracious invitation to enjoy more of God. It's almost like uh, coffee, all right? So I don't know if you've ever had coffee before, but it's pretty wonderful, uh, delicious (laughs) and good. And that's why we serve it every Sunday morning, right? But as my knowledge of coffee has expanded, I've found that my palate has become more discerning to different types of coffee. I drink my coffee black, fresh, prefer a pour over if all possible. And it's interesting, back when I was in college, I was just starting to drink coffee. I loved extra sugar and milk in it because it kind of diluted the, the, the taste of the coffee. And as my palate has expanded, I've gotten to the point where I don't use that at all anymore. I drink it black. And now my palate has grown so much where I can tell bad coffee from good coffee. I hate Starbucks now because I've tasted good coffee and my tongue can, can discern between a good cup of coffee and a bad cup of coffee. And it's like that in some way with the Christian life. That the more we grow in holiness, our palate expands. The more we're able to pick up on the nuances and the sweetness of God's glorious being, the more we can discern it for ourselves. And so holiness then allows us to enjoy more of God, to commune with him more intimately, more personally. So in light of these truths, I'm stirred personally, and I hope you are too, to true holiness, to obedience in God. And then third, I'm stirred to greater commitment to the church. I'm stirred to greater commitment to the church. As I'm united to Christ, I'm also united to the church. I'm united to the people of God, particularly the local church in which I am in a covenant membership with. That as I've received the love of God in my own heart, I'm called to reflect, to replicate, to to imitate in some way that love that God has for me and the way I love and care for you. So this means that I must love my brothers and sisters in Christ. All of them, of course, but particularly those whom I'm in covenant with in the local church. That our love for one another has an edifying and evangelistic aim, meaning that my love for the church ought to help other people grow deeper in their knowledge and experience of of God's love. However, as a church, as we do this together, as everyone loves each other sacrificially, sacrificially and selflessly, then the church community begins to clearly display the love of God towards the world. And that church begins to provide a powerful evangelistic testimony to the power and character of God and the truthfulness of his love in Christ. So now that we've considered the source of love, let's consider a bit how we respond. And this leads to the second point from the text this morning, is that we must abide in the God of love. We must abide in the God of love. So now that God's own being has been communicated to us, revealed in Christ, Now that we know that we are united to Christ and thus the pathway to communion, to fellowship, to intimacy with God is now open in Jesus. So as Christians, John says, we must abide in God, we in him and he in us. All of this happens, John says, through the bond of union of the Holy Spirit. And now bound to God by the Spirit, the love of God is perfected in us. So what is this perfect love that John talks about here? Well, John's not implying that God's love isn't perfect, 
Right? God is, is love himself. He defines what love is. Of course, God's love is perfect. So he's not implying that God's love is lacking in any way or is imperfect, but rather he's saying that perfection occurs in us, in us. The more we abide in God, the more we dive in deep into that communion that we have with him in Christ, the more God's love perfects us on this side of heaven and the sweetness of the communion we enjoy with God. So similar to the first point, let me break this one down in kind of three subpoints, right? So perfect love first abides in God. Perfect love abides in God. In Christ, we are completely united with God. Completely united. However, at the same time, we've yet to experience the, the full delight of that union with God. In the same way, when a man and woman are married, they say, I do. And then the minister pronounces them man and wife, and that's a wonderful thing. And at that moment, at that declaration, the, the man and woman are one, has husband and wife, even though they've yet to enjoy the delights of their physical union. That would be later that night, right? So in Christ, it's in a similar way. In Christ, we are one with him now. We are in Christ. We are his bride as the church, though we've yet to experience the fullness of the ravishment of his love. However, the more you abide in God in this life, the more you commune with him, the more you seek him, the more he, his love transforms you, the more you will be able to Delight in that union you share in Jesus. Delights that will not fully be enjoyed until the bridegroom comes for his bride at the end of the age. But this is what John is showing us in this text, that, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So what is John saying there? At the moment of our faith, the moment you say, Jesus saved me, I believe in you, I believed, you paid the penalty for my sins, Immediately at that moment, you abide in God. You're united to him. And the union we experience with him is true, actual, real, at the moment of your saving faith. Imagine for a second that there's a, a man whose lifelong dream is to see the Mona Lisa at the Musée de Laverne in Paris. It's kind of a weird dream, but imagine that's, that's kind of what, that's all he wants is I just want to see the Mona Lisa face to face in Paris. And so after great expectation, he finally gets to go. And his wife blindfolds him to kind of increase the anticipation a little bit, right? So she blindfolds him and walks him into the museum and puts him standing right in front of the Mona Lisa. And he's now standing in front of this, this beautiful painting but her eye, but, but, but his wife moves the blindfold. And as he's standing in front, his, his eyes are dilated from the blindfold. <laughs> they're, they're a little blurry. And so he's standing right in front of the Mona Lisa. He's looking at it, but it takes some time for his eyes to adjust in order to see the painting clearly. And only as his fuzziness begins to go away does the clarity of the painting come into focus, and only then can he bask in the beauty of the painting clearly. Only when his eyes adjust can he really enjoy the subtle smirk of da Vinci's most famous piece of art. Something similar happens when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to the Christian beholding our God, that at justification, the blindfold's lifted off. 
You're standing in front of, of the painting, so to speak. You're, you are beholding God. Your eyes are open. You can see the Lord, but yet, because of lingering sin in your heart and life, your, your, your vision's still a bit blurry. He's out of focus sometimes. So though we abide in him, we do not yet have the capacity to enjoy him in his entirety. Our eyes are still adjusting as the love of God is perfected in us. We, we have yet to experience the full capacity to be able to grasp the power of God's beauty. So at the moment of our faith, we are united to Christ. However, our experience of that union grows throughout our life. And this experience of that union is called communion with God. And over the course of our lives, that communion with God should grow sweeter, more vivid, more beautiful to us until one day we can see with eyes wide open in perfect clarity where we see him face to face. So the more then you and I, more we abide in God, the more our eyes adjust to beholding the shimmer of his glory. The more we abide in God, the more his love is perfected in us. The more our spiritual senses are heightened to be able to behold our God. And that leads to the second point here. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So the more that the love of God is perfected in our lives, that perfect love, John says, will cast out fear. It will cast out fear. And when John mentions fear here, he speaks particularly of the fear of judgment and punishment. That as we come to Christ, his perfect love in us should cast aside any fear of God's wrath. God has given us his love. There's, there's no need to fear for his wrath. Christ has paid it all. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so the Lord desires his saints to possess assurance of his love and assurance of his forgiveness. Many Christians struggle, struggle with the assurance of their salvation, don't they? How can I know? How do I know my faith is true? What if in the end I find out I was, I was fooling myself? These perplexing questions can, can haunt those who have sensitive consciences. However, assurance of salvation comes into our lives the more we daily abide in Christ. That the more the love of Christ is perfected in us, the more that perfect love begins to cast out that fear of judgment. We will not fear punishment of our sins because we know that, that in Christ, Christ has paid it all. all. As the love of God is transforming us, as it's filling us, as it's shaping us, it will become increasingly evident over the course of our lives that yes, we have been truly born from above. Our union with Christ becomes more explicit as the sweetness of our communion with Christ grows. So the question then that, that maybe you're asking yourself is how then do I abide more in Christ? If that's how I experience assurance of my salvation, as this perfect love grows in me, how can I abide more in Christ? And a, abiding in Christ means that, that we just take up the means of grace that God has given us, filling your heart and your mind with the truth of God and of the gospel. It means that we commit ourselves to, to reading, studying, and memorizing the Bible. It means we engage in earnest prayer each day. 
It means that we submit ourselves to the teaching ministry of the church. It means we respond in humility to the discipleship of other members of the body. That as we partake of these means of grace that God has given us, we will find that God will use those to expand our palate. (laughs) And that palate expands, Christ will grow sweeter and he will grow richer to our hearts as we abide in him more and more and more over the course of our lives. And as we seek the Lord, the Spirit will expand the breadth of our capacity to see, know, and experience God. And then thirdly here, perfect love obeys the command of love. Perfect love obeys the command of love. That as we are filled with love, John gives the important reminder, in case you forgot, that we love because he first loved us. As God saves us in love, he makes us a people of love. His love is replicated in us. And as we love him in return, so do we love one another. And here John brings everything full circle. Back where he began in verse 7, he brings to back up again towards the end of the passage. After this extended diving deep into the source of love, he goes back to where he started in verse 7, right? Let us love one another. And he goes on this extended discussion, and he ends in verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, what, what John does here over the course of this, this text, of kind of his argument as we try to unpack it, he says it's an oxymoron to claim to be a Christian and not to love the church. can't happen. It's impossible A Christian, he says, who hates his brother and sister in Christ, well, that's an impossibility. It's foolishness. It can't happen. As John puts it explicitly, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, John calls him a liar. A liar. If you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are mean-spirited and angry and hostile to them, then you are not born of God. Because people who are born of God, by the grace of God, love God and love the church. I mean, the logic behind John's statement is pretty clear. It's a bold statement, but it makes sense, right? That if you can't love your brother, who's literally sitting across from you, sitting across from you right now, if you can't love them, your brother and sister here, whom you do see, how can you love God whom you can't see? Because true love has its source in God, and a Christian who does not love others is a phony. They're an imposter. They're a hypocrite. They're fooling themselves. So let me tie this up for us by showing you a few more practical implications from this text that I hope will be an encouragement to you. These aren't on the screen, but again, you can. these are ways these truths have affected me, and I hope they will affect you. So first, I must daily abide in God. I must daily abide in God. This means that my personal spiritual life, my personal relationship with God is of utmost importance. That out of all my responsibilities in life, you've got your responsibilities, I have mine. Out of all of them, none should top my relationship with God. So I must prioritize time in the word, time in prayer, time with the spiritual disciplines. And look, not because it's some sort of obligatory routine that we have to do as Christians, but rather these are the channels, the conduits in which I can experience to greater capacity the sweetness of God, where I can be satisfied and refreshed and made new each day. 
The spiritual disciplines then aren't, aren't obstacles to my joy, but rather they're conduits through which I can experience joy from its source. Joy from God, it's God himself. Second, my assurance of salvation is given through the context of the church. I think that's an interesting application here, right? My assurance of salvation is given through the context of the church. That if Christian love, as John suggests, is the quintessential characteristic of those who have been truly born of God, then I must be active in the church in which that love can be displayed and given. I mean, just this kind of makes sense, right? You can't love the brothers and sisters in the church if you don't know any of the brothers and sisters in the church. You can't serve your sisters if you don't know any of your sisters. And as I press into the covenant community of the church then, I can grow in confidence in my salvation in Christ as I have the opportunity and the joy of showing and giving love to others in the body. That if I live my life in spiritual isolation, right, disconnected from everyone, disconnected from the local church, if I refuse to join a church, refuse to belong to a church, then assurance of salvation will be elusive and fleeting for you. However, when I choose to bind myself in covenant to other believers, when I choose to watch over the souls of others, even as they watch over mine, then I can know that there are others who not only attest to my salvation, but who will love me enough to rebuke me in my sin if I should stray. You see, the Christian community helps us abide further in God. The church is a means of grace in which the perfect love of God is perfected in us. And this love that casts out all fear. So my assurance of salvation is, is given to me as a gift through the context of the local church. And then third, I must love others selflessly and sacrificially. Selflessly and sacrificially. Sacrificially. This is, this is not only commanded of me by God's word. That's what John says. This is the command, right? Verse 21, this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a command. This isn't optional. But it's not just a command, but rather if I'm truly a Christian, if I've truly been born again of the Spirit of God, this is now the, the disposition of my heart to be loving as God is loving. I should not seek then to put my own selfish interests ahead of others. I should not seek to put them first in the church. The church isn't about being served. Church isn't about getting things done my way, but rather... I look, by God's grace, for ways to deny myself, laying down my wants, laying down my preferences for the good of my covenant family, those whom I have committed myself to before God. That I have a unique responsibility to my covenant family to love them at all times and in incredibly sacrificial ways. The love of God ought to be displayed in the way I, in the way you, love the members of the church and our family. So as we've learned from 1 John 4, God exists in a bond of love that is replicated and perfected in his church. And I'm convinced that God's own existence provides the paradigm for life in the church. That just as God is a community of love, so too should the church be a community of love. The Trinity impacts the nature and being of the church. And as the founding members of Redemption Church will be gathering tonight, we will choose to bind ourselves together in covenant membership. 
Uh, each member of this body that will be forming tonight has been born again by the love of God. They've been saved and redeemed by Christ and that we are choosing of our own volition led by the spirit of God to covenant before God and to covenant and watch over each other's souls. This is a weighty responsibility and it's a responsibility that ought not to be taken lightly. That as Redemption Church covenants together tonight, a new church will be born. And may we remember that we are born by God's grace. He has saved us. He is the foundation of our unity together in Christ. It is the love of Christ, in the love of Christ, that we are committing to love one another. As we are bound to one another in covenant, we will give to this body and we will receive ministry from this body. The more that love is expressed in the saints of Redemption Church, the more that it is given to one another, we will get a foretaste of the exquisite love that awaits us in heaven. That the sweetness of the fullness of communion with God is anticipated in the sweetness of the communion of the saints. And so may the sweetness of our union together tonight be a foretaste of what awaits us when we see the Lord face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled and overwhelmed, Lord, over who you are as a community of love, as our one true God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, we are astonished that you have chosen to reveal your loving nature to us through the sending of Christ. And Lord, that for anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that they are not only forgiven of their sins and made righteous before you, but Lord, that you bring them and unite them to yourself so that they can commune with you and fellowship with you and know you. Father, we pray, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, that we would press further into this union and commune with you each day in a more intimate and personal way. Father, I do pray for those here this morning who might not know Christ, who are lost in their sins, or whom they've tried time and time again to seek satisfaction and refreshment of the world, only to come up with a dusty and dry throat time and again. Father, lead them this morning to the shores of grace, where there's a river of living water that they can take and drink in Christ. Father, by your Spirit's power, cause them to be born again. Lord, may they repent of their sin and trust truly and firmly in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Father, we pray that as this wonderful gospel, Lord, takes root in our hearts and our lives, as you birthed us in love, Father, we pray that you would cause us to be a loving people. Lord, we are so overjoyed, Lord, that by your grace you have formed this new church. And Lord, I pray particularly for the founding members of Redemption Church will be covenanting together tonight, Lord, that we would all take seriousness, the joy of covenanting together as a people as we constitute this church tonight. Father, may the love that we have for one another always be evident. May it not be tainted by our sinfulness in any way. But Lord, as your love is perfected in us, Lord, may the sweetness of our fellowship only grow with the years. And Lord, may our evangelistic witness only grow in power. So Father, we love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.